0: Do you want to have a more robust, systematic plan for teaching your students new language skills? Then you are in for a treat. Welcome to Episode 111 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. I'm your host, Rose Griffin, and I had a delightful conversation today with Dr. Sarah Frampton. If you don't know Sarah's work, she has worked clinically with individuals with disabilities for over 16 years. She is a wealth of information and has worked in some amazing places. She worked in the language and learning clinic at the Marcus Autism Center. She also held an appointment at the May. Institute. And now she is an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska, Omaha. And she has research interests related to teaching new skills to individuals with and without disabilities. She's published over 25 articles across the major behavior analytic journals and serves on several editorial boards. She's really a wealth of information today. And we talk all about a topic called matrix training. If you haven't heard of this, I suggest you'll listen to the entire episode for the full duration. It is going to help you so much with your language intervention. Without further ado, let's start this episode.
1: You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech a speech therapist and board certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next
0: therapy session. Thanks so much for joining us on Episode 111 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. We have an amazing episode for you today. Today we have with us Dr. Sarah Frampton. Thanks so much for joining us. It's so nice to have you on.
1: Thank you. It's such a pleasure. I'm a fan.
0: (laughs) Likewise. I'm having a fangirl moment. I was telling uh, Sarah before when we met, uh, we did a pre-podcast meeting that I think that maybe I learned about her work at ABAI, which was a really, what seems like forever ago. It was in San Diego. It was my first Mm -hmm. time attending that conference. Probably my only time just because it's on Memorial Day weekend, which... I do own a boat and I have 3 kids so it's just hard it is hard to get away that weekend but I'm so glad I went because I just met so many people in real life that was just really cool and I learned all about matrix training and and some of your work and so probably attended one of your sessions and I was like oh yeah this is amazing this is exciting <laughs> stuff printed off the article after the conference and really tried to implement it in my therapy so I'm excited for you to share about that today so can you tell us, for those that are not familiar with you and your work, a little bit about you, your journey into the, the field, and how you kind of got here.
1: Sure. Uh, I think I got into the field. It's kind of a common story. I graduated with my bachelor's degree from University of California, Davis. I had a degree in economics, I think because I liked the graphs like supply. I found the graphs very soothing for some strange reason. And then I had this spare degree in psychology and I really didn't know what I wanted to do with it other than I was vaguely interested in like helping people and finding a way to make a difference. And so with my degrees, I did what you did in the mid 2000s, which is you go on Craigslist to find a job, which of course is not really, I think what people would do now, but back then, It was okay. <laughs> like You would not get murdered. It was all fine. Yeah. So I got this job as an entry-level behavior tech at a wonderful ABA agency in the Sacramento area. Shout out to Hope Consulting. And I just fell in love with it. I mean, I think day of, just in <laughs> session, felt like this is, this makes sense to me. This is what mm-hmm. I want to do. I just loved it. Um, The fact that we could Kind of effortlessly move between playing and fun and then learning just felt correct to me. And I I just loved it. And so I was hooked and I wanted to find a way to keep doing that. Um, and so I had a great super, I had a number of wonderful supervisors, but one, um Candice Bright really encouraged me to get my master's degree. She said, if you want to keep doing this, you need your master's. And I was um, living in Sacramento at the time. So I checked out Sacramento State had a master's in education program with an emphasis in special education. And I thought that would make a lot of sense because in my limited experience, I had already seen how important it was to understand the IEP process, to work as a part of an interdisciplinary team. And I, I wanted to make sure that as I practiced as a BCBA, that I understood the system and how to interact with all these different persons um, and how we could together create the most effective um, educational approaches for learners. So I thought that was a great approach. Also did not require a DRE and at the time that was very appealing to me. So I was like, great, I'll get my master's in ed and then I can take all my electives in the psychology program. Um, So I had my great little loophole all worked out and it was going great. And then one day, one of the professors, Dr. Kyo Miguel, asked to meet with me. And I was like, oh, my gosh, they figured out my loophole. They're <laughs> kicking me out of this program. Oh, no. Um, that is not what happened. He actually asked um, if I wanted to do a thesis with him. And I was like, oh, my gosh, of course I do. <laughs> that radically changed my education plan. I went from a 2 years master's program to a four-year Um, to complete that thesis. But at the end, I actually, my thesis is published in JAB. So that worked out pretty well for me. And that experience really, really just helped me fall in love with research Mm -hmm. and that process of how you ask a question and pursue an answer. Um, And so I'm very grateful for that experience. It completely changed my life. Um, And Set the stage for um, kind of my next step. Once I graduated, um, my husband is from the Atlanta area, and mm-hmm. he wanted to move back there. And so Dr. Miguel connected me with Dr. Alice Schillingsberg, and she just happened to have an opening in the amazing language and learning clinic at the Marcus Autism Center, which mm-hmm. that place, I mean, changed my life. When I mm-hmm. think of my formative experiences, it was mm-hmm. really my five years that I spent in the language and learning clinic that just transformed how I research, how I practice—just it was a magical experience. Which, um, you know, I've connected with folks that were there at the same time, and we we share this feeling, and we mm-hmm. keep, we talk about it often of like, how is that so incredible? But it just it was—it was magical. We we were a part of an incredible team of BCBAs, predoctoral interns, postdoctoral interns, licensed psychologists, all with a really unified mission of we need to accelerate language and learning skills with kids with autism. We need to do it fast, we need to do it effectively, and, and we need to support each other in doing that. And so I when I look at the work that I've published, actually a lot of it originated there, if not was done then as a master's level clinician, yeah. but as a part of a really incredible team. Um, so that experience was just so formative for me um, and feel very lucky to have had that. Um, And so from there, I actually followed Dr. Shillingsburg to the May Institute to take a leadership position um, there. It's a nonprofit organization based Mm -hmm. out of the Boston area. Um, I had a couple titles, but I um, was the director of clinical services and training for children's services. And so my job there, it was the first time I I wasn't directly like solely responsible as a clinician Mm -hmm. for patient care, which was really hard and scary for me. And I missed it a lot. Um, But my job was to develop a curriculum library that served all of the children's services um, to develop entry level staff training procedures, Mm -hmm. um, continuing education for our teams, and then to provide consultation to teachers, SLPs, OTs, BCBAs um, across all of our sites across the country. So that was a big move. um, And it was at that time that I um, started my Ph.D., um, I, you know, being in the Boston area, I instantly was like, oh, my gosh, I could go to Simmons University and I could work with <laughs> Dr. Judah Axe, who I um, had met previously. And he's so smart, so wonderful, so encouraging, inspiring. So I was really excited that I got to do my degree with him. Um, and somehow all that wrapped up in spring 2022. I I keep thinking, I keep pinching myself because I'm still pretty sure I didn't graduate. Like I still have a dream that <laughs> I did not graduate, but... I did and um I actually made another move and I'm hoping it's the last one to Omaha <laughs> to um, be beyond faculty with the University of Nebraska Omaha in um, their ABA graduate program.
0: Oh, amazing. So probably when I met you at ABAI, you were probably talking about research you did when you were at the Marcus Autism Center. Probably. That's right.
1: Absolutely. Okay. I, mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I I think you know that was such an Excellent space to do research because we had really skilled um, team members. You know, mm-hmm. we had folks that were getting their master's degree at Georgia State um, that were wanting to become BCBAs. Um, we were working right alongside pre and postdoc interns that mm-hmm. just brought this other level of training and expertise. Um, we had close oversight by um, Dr. Alice Schillingsberg, Dr. Caitlin Delfs, just these wonderful clinicians and researchers. So it was just an ideal context to do research, honestly, and clinical research. Because we didn't have a research, like there was a research unit, but we weren't in it. We were the Mm. clinical arm. Um, We just had really high standards of clinical Mm -hmm. care. Like it was, I've I've not, I've uh, achieved that since, but it was a really <laughs>
0: magical experience. <laughs> that's that's really nice. I, I I can tell that it was such a positive time in your your life. I know other people probably listening like, man, I want to feel that way about my work setting because a- every setting is different. I I had a oh, yeah. not a similar experience where it was super positive, but one where I learned so so much and was around mm-hmm. people who were so eager to learn and share and were experts in the field. So I love that. That's just so exciting i think we all strive for wanting to have that type of experience at work i know that i do now i'm working for my own company so you know it's all about me and like setting up those frameworks so i like that um so tell us today we're going to talk a, a bit about matrix training which for some people it may be new we did cover it I have a five hour Asha approved and Ace course called the Advanced Language Learner that we just launched in the fall. And I had Dr. Oliver Wendt do a 30 minute, just kind of scratching the surface on what is matrix training. And he's doing some research in that area. So he's able to share some clinical videos, which I always like to do, which is harder for me now because I'm not seeing as many clients. So it was dipping a toe. So, but if you haven't taken that course, I think this will be a good introduction to what really what is matrix training. So I guess how did you become passionate about matrix training or did it all start kind of at the at the market? Autism center is that where that kind of started?
1: It did actually, you know. Um, I think like all of my research really originates, I think, in trying to solve a problem. Um, you know, and a lot of my research also originates in something I've heard you talk about, Rose, where you you reflect on the choices that 23-year-old you make. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I was about 28 at the time. So I don't even have the benefit of like total youth to to blame for some of yeah. the things that I used mm-hmm. to do that now. Uh, They make me cringe a little. Um, And I, at the time, was seeing patients, um, we were a very focused intervention model, um, 10 to 15 hours per week maximum, short-term admission. So our explicit mission was to teach to behavioral cusps. Like, we had to accelerate learning. And when I talk about behavioral cusps, I think of those as learn-to-learn skills. Mm -hmm. So I didn't just want to teach content. Like, here's 10 skills. I wanted to teach the ability to learn new skills Forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I was, you know, seeing these patients, I found we were pretty readily successful in establishing um the tact operant. So, you know, expressive mm-hmm. labeling typically for one-word utterances. So we were teaching nouns and verbs and colors and shapes, and um, we were doing really well there. Um, and as a student of bidirectional naming, I, I really emphasize tact training over listener training, um, mm-hmm. even with learners that aren't vocal, even with folks that communicate using sign or SGDs, um, that is where I tend to emphasize. Mm-hmm. Um, but as we were filling up our VB map milestones and patting <laughs> ourselves on the back and feeling so excited about it, then we're reaching that VB map milestone, I think it's milestone nine, that requires 52 component noun, verb, text, or mm-hmm. listener skills. And so, when we reach that milestone, you know, what I 28-year-old me did then was, okay, let's start teaching just a bunch of noun for combinations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, trying to find ones of significance to the learner certainly started off that way usually. Mm-hmm. But by the time we're scraping the barrel at 50, I mean, the <laughs> social relevance, I got, I mean, strained at this. And so <laughs> it was really reflecting on that and just that gut feeling of this isn't right. I just don't feel like this is right. I feel like I'm teaching to the test. I don't Mm -hmm. think that I'm doing what was intended to be done here. And when I would watch my learners emit these trained utterances that I trained, I just realized how limited their expression was. They were Mm -hmm. limited to what I taught them rather than being empowered to express and tact and describe anything that was of interest to them. So I just knew we were not hitting that mark of, flexible, generative utterances. And mm-hmm. so that was the problem. <laughs> um, and, you know, being surrounded by the greatest minds and verbal behavior in the country, just about, we were all like acknowledging that problem and realizing we we didn't have a better way at the time. Um, so um, I actually attended a talk uh, from Dr. Chada Dixon, um, who it was on matrix training, but was something completely different, not now in verb tacting. And when she was presenting, I was like, oh my gosh, what if this is it. Yeah. Um, and I felt that light bulb go out. We could totally do this, and I was so excited. And then, of course, as I went back and I was like, I have this great idea. I realized, oh my gosh, there's somebody already had this idea. Like a bunch <laughs> of people already had this idea. It's already been published on quite a few times. But what I think we did is we kind of took some of those studies that had been published on matrix training, and we were trying to find a way of doing it that fits contemporary ABA service models. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's so important because you know, we have limited time and little limited resources. And so Mm -hmm. we were trying to kind of take what had been done, but put it in a format that hopefully could be deployed, certainly in our clinical setting, because we were a clinical setting, we weren't a research site specifically. Mm -hmm. So we had to be able to do it in our regular practice implemented by our behavior technicians. So that was kind of our, our tiptoe into it was look at the literature, see what's in there, and then find a way to take it and repackage it so that it could be done in practice.
0: Yeah, I love that. That's so important because a lot of my listeners, most of them are people who are in the trenches who are practicing. I think that's why matrix training is so attractive because you do want your you want every child to have spontaneous language that is yep. novel and is not everything that's just wrote. So so for our listeners that haven't heard of matrix training, can you give us a working definition of, of what that means?
1: Sure. Um I'm going to ask you to visualize, if you will. I'm a very visual person, <laughs> So I always have to have like visual aids and tables and graphs and figures. But um, if you'll kind of visualize a table, um, three rows, three columns, that's a matrix right there. Um, on the rows, you might have one component. Um, it could be a noun, it could be a color, it could be an adjective, it could be any component. I usually use nouns for my example. Mm-hmm. So on the rows, we have three nouns, dog, cat, horse. And then the columns are gonna be another component. Again, I'm gonna use verb as an example. So it might be eating, running, jumping. And so between those two components, when we look at our table, if we were to fill it in and combine each noun with each verb, we would have nine different combinations. You know, like three times, we got some math going on there. So we have our nine combinations of those two components. Um, That is our matrix. Um, And so matrix, Training is kind of a misnomer, I've realized, because the training itself is not special. It's just like whatever way of training works well, use it. Mm -hmm. It's really like planning. So it's matrix planning. You design your matrix and then you strategically select what are the fewest number of targets I can teach so that I get blackout bingo. Like, I want to fill out that table completely. I want this learner to acquire every one of those skills, but I don't want to have to teach every one of them. I want to teach as few of them as possible. Um, And, you know, quite a few models in the literature suggest that um, if you use component skills that are already mastered. So if all those Mm -hmm. nouns and all those verbs were already mastered by the learner as single word utterances, all you might need to do is train the diagonal targets, so to speak, Mm -hmm. also called the non-overlapping target. So if you kind of visualize that upper left corner to the middle target to the lower right, you might just teach those three diagonal targets those three diagonal targets each include one exemplar of each noun in each firm. Mm-hmm. Um, you train those three, and then you probe the remaining targets to see, okay, I taught three. Did those other six targets emerge as a product of training those three? Um, and, you know, I have found a lot of times that it does. Um, mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing, yeah. like, that it yeah. actually readily works. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't, what I think the beauty of matrix training is, is that when you probe, what you're really going to do is uncover faulty stimulus control in a really systematic way. Like you don't want to wait till 30 tacts in to realize that we have a faulty stimulus control problem. I want to know that quickly. Mm -hmm. And so what that might look like is you probe dog um, running, you trained dog eating, but now you probe dog running and you know what the kid's going to do. They're going to see the dog and they're going to say dog eating because that's (laughs) what was trained.
0: Mm -hmm. And what that
1: tells you is that tact wasn't acquired under all the right stimulus control. Mm-hmm. Probably just the dog was controlling the entire utterance. So every time I see a dog now, I'm going to say dog eating, even mm-hmm. though the dog is running, jumping, sleeping, doing all kinds of different actions. Um, and so when we see that type of faulty stimulus control, uh, again, a matrix is going to help you catch it just immediately. And once you catch it, it's, it's not scary. You just pick another one of those targets in the matrix and you train that. Um, mm-hmm. So you might pick three more targets and then you train those from within the matrix and then probe again. And potentially through that kind of effects of nice multiple exemplar training, you're um, Mm -hmm. training targets that are similar to one another. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we're just refining that stimulus control to be more precise. And now when you probe those targets, boom, there they are. Um, And um, you've kind of corrected that stimulus control issue. um, And you're gonna see a lot more targets now occurring without having to be directly taught.
0: Yeah, it's so exciting. It's just, I I don't think that people, well, and you know, I was in the schools for 20 years. I worked, you know, three days a week in the schools. Sometimes when you're a school based SLP, you are just reacting to everything that's in your environment. Like there's an IEP meeting. Uh oh, this advocate's here. This, I worked in a very (laughs) affluent district and so it was extremely stressful and you can't always, but I like to talk about these things that kind of push us to practice at the top of our at the top of our game because when I heard you talk at ABAI, it reminded me, it's not exactly the same, but I created the Action Builder Cards, this product that I have. Mm -hmm. It's more based on on multiple exemplar training because a lot of speech therapists at least will get a set of verb cards and there's only one picture of eating, one picture of playing, yep. one picture of kissing. <laughs> and then we're trying to mix and vary and do all these things. And then we do have trouble with generalizing skills. And so when I heard you talk about matrix training at ABAI maybe five years ago, I thought to myself, wow, this is really amazing. And this is what I want for all my kids. I want my kids to be spontaneous. I want them to have say things that weren't directly taught. And we know yeah. how really hard that is. And so mm-hmm. if you're listening to in and you're like, okay, this sounds very complicated. and It's a whole thing. It's really just that we should be analyzing how we're teaching is that we really need to be more systematic. I, I use that a lot, that word when yeah. I started my online business. Uh, but it's very true because sometimes we're just surviving and we're just trying to get the mm-hmm. IP written and we're just trying to get the meeting done. But if you're able to analyze in this way, you can get more bang for your buck. And I do think one of the things about ABA that a lot of people say is, oh, well, you know, it's so robotic and they're just doing things that they were taught. But this is a way for us to really analyze our instruction and to make it more systematic. And so I think that it's really important to talk about these things that I remember after ABAI, I printed off maybe the article that you had referenced or you had done and talked about. And I had a student who used AAC and I definitely was making my own little matrix. It doesn't have oh, to be yeah. anything perfect because it's not like Sarah's going to be checking your work the this is just you on your own. Um, and I love the fact that it was that you were the clinical arm at the... Um, I've heard of the Marcus Autism Center, obviously. It's, you yeah. know, as, um, everybody kind of knows about it. But um, I didn't know that, that they had a language and learning clinic. I'm excited to kind of dive in and see. But it, how cool that you were able to really kind of put this into action And that you were thinking about it because you were doing the work, you were in the clinic Mm -hmm. and you were providing this instruction. I think sometimes it's hard for us to always be in touch with the research and to see how it's You know, readily available, and how we can do this in our clinics. Um, But I think that once we have this framework and we're thinking through it, I think this is just so important for for kind of that generalization piece and kind of how we're helping our students be more independent communicators. So I think it's great. So if somebody's listening and they're thinking, okay, well, I have a caseload of you know X amount of students, what learners in general would benefit from this embedded into their intervention? So just talking about language level and what type of student is this important. It
1: for. Sure. Um, you know, in my work at Marcus Autism Center, and then at the May Institute, I've had the opportunity to implement matrix training with I actually don't know how many kids so uh, individuals. Uh, I would say even not just kids. So I can happily say that, you know, even just from our published studies, we found that um, we found robust effects in language, even for um, students of 16 years old. Um, And so I think age is not necessarily a factor that would limit me in um, considering this intervention, which I, again, as a practitioner, I think that's so important Mm -hmm. because we find interventions, but they only work for like, one profile, and it tends mm-hmm. to be the itty bitty. So <laughs> if it only works for them, then it, you know, I don't know, it's hard. I like things that work for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so we found that even with some of our young adults, this approach worked because it relies on just solid foundational principles of let's just teach well. And so I think teaching well mm-hmm. is not limited to any age group or demographic, which is a good thing. Um, I will say in terms of prerequisite skills, I would just generally not advise teaching two component tact or two component listener skills until you have established that you can teach really good single component tact or single component listener skills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I have certainly seen the profile of learner that will you know will come in, we will do an assessment, and I see oh they have acquired a lot of these good prerequisite skills. Let's get started. That I, I, is exciting, but I also think it's important to realize. Are you able to teach them new tact and new listener skills? Are you able to provide instruction in a way that they will assent to, that they enjoy? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we forget to check that box. So mm-hmm. I do think that's important that you have found a way to teach them that they like, they enjoy, and that they're responding to. Because you do not want to be unpacking issues of faulty stimulus control just with basic echoic Prompting um, mm-hmm. when you're in the middle of a matrix intervention. You just want to know that, hey, we have worked out the kinks, how to teach new skills readily to this learner. They're acquiring things pretty quickly and steadily um, without major complications. So that to me is the main thing I look for. And when we've hit that, um, you know, when we can check those boxes, I, I say get started um, pretty quickly. So as soon as those single component skills are being acquired you know, fairly readily, they're maintaining, they're generalizing, you're not seeing that as soon as you introduce a new target, that's the first one was lost. So when we have those boxes really ticked, then I think it's a great moment to introduce matrix training. So a lot of times this is in that um, level two zone of the VB map for those who use that assessment. So about 18 to 30 months developmentally in language, which is also when I recall my children starting to do this. Um, you know, so when I, you know, they started acquiring a couple of those words, they found a couple little phrases and then all of a sudden everything was being recombined. So I think that, that language zone is approximately what I would shoot for, but I just like to stress to clinicians and practitioners everywhere, like make sure you have a good steady method of teaching mm-hmm. that's working well for the learner before you do something more complicated. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I love that answer. That's, that's important. Yeah. Keep things fun and functional. That's kind of oh, my yeah. tagline <laughs> there. I like that. Uh, I it. <laughs> yes, I'm here for it. So tell me, so what are some examples, I guess, for matrix training that if a SLP or BCBA, or anybody listening would want to implement, I guess I'm wondering, as we're talking more now, is this something that's more discrete trial, trial where you're using flashcards or is it also net, natural environment or is it a combination or how, I, you know, I can't remember what the research says, but can you talk to us about how you can implement it or what might be best practice of dividing those things?
1: Sure. Great question. Um, again, one of the things I really appreciate about matrix training is that I think the answer is all of the above um, in that it's really about the plan it's It's mm-hmm. really the effects of the intervention are found in the plan for teaching. So that we are strategically going to assess select targets, teach targets, and then the assess the effects of our intervention. So I don't think that from the, what the research says, from my own practice, I just I think the way you teach it is the way that's going to be best for the learner. And so if mm-hmm. you have a learner, that prefers natural environment teaching, embed your trials naturalistically. Um, A lot of, actually, um, the majority, or two of our published studies in this area, we did live modeling with little figurines. So, you know, we found Mm -hmm. every clinic, school, you name it, has a billion (laughs) of these little animal figurines to be found. We would just find those and that we would demonstrate the actions with that little figurine. We did do that at a table in a structured teaching context, but mm-hmm. we used highly mixed and varied instruction. So it was really fast paced and engaging and fun mm-hmm. and silly. So it, I don't know, I think when people hear discrete trial, they instantly think boring. And I think if <laughs> if you think your teaching is boring, then we have a whole different conversation <laughs> right. we need to have. But yeah, I think, you know, we did that at the table. You could just have easily done that on the floor mm-hmm. um, playing with a kiddo. So I in my opinion, and from what the literature tells us, I don't think we have any reason to think we're restricted in how we teach it. Okay. Um, we, in uh, reviews of the literature, show that a variety of teaching strategies have been used. So, if you use most, least prompting, great. As long as it works, use it. Mm-hmm. Use least to most, great. As long as it works, use it. We used mm-hmm. transfer trials and use those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it worked for us. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really just what works for the learner um, and finding a context that's fun and enjoyable and selecting targets that make sense um, to mm-hmm. you know to do in those respective contexts. Um, I found um, when I was working at the May Institute, one of the you know. When it's one thing when I was using matrix training with my patients and then sharing that protocol with my colleagues that sat one desk over and they were using it mm-hmm. to scale matrix training across mm-hmm. an institution of multiple schools and centers nationwide, that was a challenge that we took on. and to do that, what we found was we created um protocols and target lists that just mm-hmm. had a matrix structure to them, meaning, the first three targets in the target list in Central Reach, it happened to be. Mm -hmm. Um, First three targets were the diagonal targets. The next six were the recombinations. Mm -hmm. And we just designed our standard templates that way. And of course, we encourage teachers, BCBAs, SLPs, OTs, anyone to change the targets. If those are not the right targets from your learner, if they don't need to learn red star, then change red star to red Mm -hmm. circle. Change whatever you want to change. But adhere to the structure. If you adhere to that structure, then you're going to get the effects of matrix training. Um, And what was really fun is, you know, we created the library that way so that folks could just import those programs. If they chose to teach the targets in that order, they would get the benefits of matrix training without Mm -hmm. having to do all the planning and recreate all the matrix wheels and so forth. So I do think that is another option for folks that are working in those settings that have, I mean, big caseloads and so many needs and so many fires to put out is if you can create some kind of standard target lists, that mm-hmm. can always be personalized, but if they don't have to be, then great, use those and just have the matrix structure embedded. Um, and I have seen the effects of that be quite robust. Um, you know, we may not have as close of an analysis as we would <laughs> if we're going to try to publish in Java, but right, that's right. that's not the standard of clinical practice. The standard of clinical practice is did it work? Did it work well? Um, did it work efficiently? And did the learner enjoy it? So I think that's an avenue to consider as well. Um, mm-hmm. Is And um, Dr. Judah Axe and I put some work into creating a tutorial that we really hoped would literally, I mean, the goal was that a clinician, an SLP, anybody could take this tutorial and hopefully mm-hmm. use it. And in that tutorial, which we published this fall, it's in behavior analysis and practice, we have some examples. So we have template matrices, we have target list. There's instructions for how you kind of might set that up um, in any kind of curricular library. So again, recognizing all of those things you said, Rose, about what it's like in day-to-day work. I mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so that was our hope was that we could mm-hmm. maybe kind of help bridge that gap just a tiny bit with that tutorial.
0: Oh, I love that. And you know, something that I have found over the past five years, just doing some consulting is that some clinics are so organized, like you're talking about. They're Mm -hmm. doing these things. They're doing training. They're thinking about net versus DDT and doing all the things. Others are like so on the other side of child-led that I'm like, what are we Mm -hmm. doing here? Do we That they would never think of these things that we're talking about today. That's why I feel so passionate about talking about these things because we have to have structure. We have to have some idea of what we're doing here. Actually, my I saw that you're talking. Are you doing the verbal behavior conference? Am I correct? And I sure I am. Okay, um, so we'll be talking so, about matrix. Time. Okay, <laughs> wonderful. So my supervisor actually owns Central Texas Autism Centers, Kelly Rich. That was my BCBA supervisor. So I really learned a lot when I was down in Austin about okay, this is at the table, this is what natural environment is. And when you do natural environment teaching correctly, and I feel like as a speech therapist, we kind of do this systematically anyway, if we're really on our A game is that we're, it might look like play, but we're embedding these targets and we're embedding work on different things. And sometimes I have to do parent training and say like, well, this is what joint attention is. And this is what we're really working on and kind of talking about these foundational skills before we get to actual talking. And, you know, that's a whole training component. But I just really commend you on all the work you're doing in the field because there are just not enough places that are, are listening. Because I think sometimes the need is so great for ABA services that clinics are growing and they're getting and staffing is an issue. And then we're kind of losing sight of like, remember, this is systematic. (laughs) Remember, we're analysts. We need to analyze. So I think talking about these things is just really exciting because this is the world that I live in where I want every child to have spontaneous, independent communication. And the way that we do that is we stick with science, we analyze what we're doing, and we make sure that we have this framework for each child. And who we're working with. And really what I've learned too, you know, I first started, I talk a lot about SLP-BCBA collaboration. Mm -hmm. What I have found is a lot of ABA centers really don't employ speech language pathologists. So I we're an ACE provider too. So I'm doing more courses about these types of topics because if a BCBA is tasked with communication programming, I want them to have all the information that they would need. And that's just kind of how it is. And a lot of ABA centers don't always employ Speech therapist is what I'm learning here in Cleveland, Ohio. They do. I feel like that's the gold standard for everybody listening, but yeah, I feel like sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's not like that. So I think this is really important for us to think about. And this is definitely going beyond the task list. So I love this information. It's like so high level. Thanks for coming on. Um, if people want to learn more about matrix training and want to find out more about you and your work, can you tell us how to find out about those things?
1: Sure. Um, you know, I am I am on LinkedIn <laughs> and a lot of my work um is available on ResearchGate. Um if you just shoot me a little message on ResearchGate, I'm I try to be quick and responsive to that. I will share anything that I've ever done with any person. So please oh, nice. reach out. Um I think I shared a link to my faculty bio at University of Nebraska Omaha and there's again some citations and things that I've worked on there. Um And again, my, I, again, I feel that same passion and desire to help our field and broadly that, you know, we can't just have a couple of these places that are these wonderful places of you know, utopian mm-hmm. <laughs> practice of behavior analysis and collaboration with SLPs. We need, that needs to become the standard. And so mm-hmm. I would love to assist anyone who reaches out to me. Um, I've actually gotten to do some collaborative and consultative work with folks even in Mexico on implementing mm-hmm. matrix train, mm-hmm. training with a Spanish speaking young girl. So I, I love any opportunity to connect with folks in practice because I think too, for me, leaving practice and moving into faculty has been scary because I I want to maintain that connection to practice. Like the minute that we lose sight of what it's like day to day in a classroom, in a therapy room, I think our work starts to become irrelevant and we have to remember what it's like. And so I strive actively to develop collaborative relationships. I think they're so important.
0: I love that. Wonderful. Well, it has been a pleasure, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on and I'll see you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.